Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to the People's Medicine Show. This is a, a monthly show. I didn't do a show last month, but my name is Sean, and I'm a um, community herbalist, a gardener. I love making uh, medicines out of the plants. Um, so those, those are sort of my specialties, but I like to use this monthly show to talk about all, all, all sorts of topics. Um, so I didn't know, uh, oh, I got to be careful of saying um too much, but I didn't do a show in October. I just wasn't in the mood for it. And, um, but, well, I did it again. <laughs> so I'm very conscious of trying not to say um or ah. Uh. So the month of October, I refrained from smoking or vaping any cannabis. And I was expecting just a horrible result. I was expecting sort of the experience that I had when I abruptly stopped smoking cigarettes and tobacco. Uh, I was expecting to feel agitated and not being able to think clearly and um, having disturbing sleep. And I had absolutely no side effects from quitting pot. And um, it, it, it is very interesting because there's many people now that are going around saying that marijuana is very addictive. And especially if you're a daily user, you are very prone to having, um, you know, psychosis and other, you know. And so it is funny that I wanted to test that out. And I found it not to be true, even for a person like me that tends to be sort of um, an addictive personality. I really was expecting, oh, what am I going to switch to some other kind of, you know, habit? Um, but I did not feel anything except uh, missing it. So I started to smoke again on Halloween or maybe the night after. And it's been a lot of fun. I, I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I, I feel so creative. But I did not do a show for two months. So perhaps um, I could tell you what I've been up to since the first part of September. So let me make sure. I think I am on the line. I don't think I'm muted. So, yeah, I'm signed into the Blog Talk Radio pat, uh, dashboard. And this is just such a wonderful interface. Uh, Blog Talk Radio is a paid service. Um, Susan Weed pays for this account, and she offered to give me um, my own show four years ago. So it's been four years since I've been doing this um, somewhat irregular show. At first, I thought I could do one every week and that, that I would have a lot of people that would come and try to help me, and it would maybe it would increase, and I would do more than one a week. But even just doing one a week, it was like I don't have enough space in my life that I want to give this. So I came up with an idea to do one per month and to just pick, pick a day of the month and do it every month. So I've been almost successful <laughs> doing it consistently every month. There's been periods in the past four years where I just got completely terrified and lacking confidence where I didn't want to do it for three or four months. And I just was sort of like running away from it. But I, um, so in the month of September, I did a challenge, another challenge, and I wanted to be able to journal for a minimum of five minutes every day. And I dated, you know, I have a hard, hard book, uh, hard cover journal and I just dated every page every day, sat down. I would set the timer on the microphone, microwave at first for about five minutes. And I just sat there and wrote. 
And some days, perhaps I just sat by myself in court and had absolutely very little, maybe a, a sentence or two in five minutes. And then other days, just just giving myself that space to write and sitting um, unleashed a lot of creativity throughout the month. So I have an entire month of just dated journal entries that went all over the place. So perhaps I did have a show in October, but perhaps I did not give myself enough space to do that show. And I just did not have um, the willingness at the beginning of October to do the show, but I am uh, wanting to catch up and let people know what I've been doing for the past two months. So I had a humongous um, CBD cannabis garden this year. You know, it was almost 10 plants altogether. So that was uh, quite a challenge. Uh, to get it all harvested and dried properly. And um, you know, I thought I was an expert, but I really, you know, I'm still just learning, especially when it comes to the uh, harvesting and the drying and um, just gauging how to dry it enough, but not to make it like sawdust. So it is challenging because if you don't dry it enough and then you like stick it in a glass jar, it's just it becomes compost. So there is just this fine line and I've um, sought advice from people and most people are just like, no, you basically have to use feeling, intuition, because most people do not have a temperature and humidity controlled room. So everyone's time frames, uh, the size of the plant material that you're hanging to dry is always going to be different. So I just, um, I worked with um, an, an herbalist based in New York this year, uh, Tammy Sweet, and she gave me a lot of um, really good pointers about using the hanging baskets. And, um, you know, she showed me which baskets that are really uh, the best that she's found most helpful. And the ones that do not have, like, a sidewall was the one that she recommended. And I did find that a lot easier to work with because the first time I bought a hanging basket, it had sort of a sidewall. So you basically had to work on one side where the doorway of the drying basket is, where if it does not have sidewalls, you could walk around it and adjust things and make sure everything is not touching while it's in uh, the drying mode. So I was just about done drying last week. I had one last really juicy plant. I believe it came from the Dutch Passion Seed Company. And it was a one-to-one THC to CBD. So perhaps, I, I don't know if we're going to test it, but it was probably maybe 10% THC and 10% CBD. So it has sort of a balanced profile. So um, one of the local grandmas in my community uh, called me up and says, I need plant material. I want to make the moon, the special moon is coming up, and I want to make medicine. Do you have anything in your garden? I was like, I just so happened to have a, a beautiful plant that I was finishing. It was my very last one. So I uh, visited her on election day, and it was just so cool because she's been here for 30 years, and she was born on, on Oahu. But she's been here on the Big Island for about 30 years, so she's very familiar with all the local politics. So I brought my blank ballot down there, and she helped me fill out my, my ballot. And I feel like I, 
I consider myself extremely political savvy. Like I read five, six, you know, newspapers a day. And, um, but uh, when it came to these local issues, I was going to consult someone who's been here 30 years. who knows a lot more people and a lot more of the intricacies to, um, really, um, you know, make my vote count, you know, give it some true intention. And I, I do believe election day is like a sacred right. And um, you can put, put forth your power into the universe. And right now in the United States of America, we're waiting for, to find out when the next, what the next president's going to be for the next four years. So it appears to be 50% of our country voted for one and 50% voted for the other. And I think we're all getting the idea that, hey, the other side has their ideas and we have ours. And, you know, and we, I just love the fact that I'm able to look at the strengths and weaknesses of both sides and then just make up my mind. And I'm basically an anti-war voter when it comes to a president. I kind of choose the president who I think won't start a war. <laughs> and that really is my top criteria. And my mother was... Um, active in the Republican Party the last years of her life. And she was a, a diehard, like, real, like, second-wave feminist liberal. And there she is at the end of her life getting involved with their local Republican club. And she was like, I'm still pro-choice as hell. You know, she was, like, probably pro-choice, you know, up to nine months. <laughs> you know, my mother was one of the most socially liberal people that I've ever known. And, and she was like, yeah, I just in resonating with the Republican Party. She's like, I'm all about, like, war and the economy. And that was what she was uh, – she felt that the higher government offices, you know, that those were the priorities and that the social issues happen at cocktail parties and having just regular conversations with people and persuading people on a ground level about social issues and – things um, of that kind. Um, other political issues that I'm very interested in that I like having dialogues about is um, the concept of a uh, universal basic income and also um, the fact that black Americans, that many are choosing to not identify as black Americans anymore and that they're choosing to identify first as Americans, descendants of slavery. ADOS for short. So I'm also really excited that Marianne Williamson uh, brought that out in the Democratic primary that, um, you know, the United States has um, sort of a spiritual debt that, that is unresolved. And it has to do with uh, descendants of slavery who have been held back. And I've studied history and there's been a period uh, after the Civil War, where there was some positive re reconstruction, where um, descendants of slavery and people who were slaves were giving like preferential government jobs, but then that was sort of reversed, and then there was a Jim Crow era. So, not only were they forced, you know, their descent, their ancestors were forced to give free labor to this country for 300 years, but that now for the past almost you know, 150 years now past the Civil War and this, quote, freeing of the slaves has been this horrible oppression, which came to extreme, you know, light this year with, you know, a cop murdering a black man on live video. 
I grew up in the New York City area. I've seen cops beat the shit out of people. So it's not something that really shocked me, you know, because I've seen it from a young age. And I've been exposed to a lot of, you know, violent culture that most people probably haven't seen. So I'm really starting to understand um, that perhaps, you know, the way I communicate to others, um, people have no idea where I'm coming from and what I've been exposed to. And perhaps I need to develop like a fine sensitivity to realize that, yeah, most people have not seen like um, a dead body in the public park that was chopped up and put into a garbage bag, (laughs) you know, I saw that probably when I was nine years old and I saw the police uh, cordon off the area of the park and pick up body parts all over the place. You know, I don't know. I I was exposed to really rough and tumble type of reality at a pretty young age. My parents told me, hey, if there's an adult who stops in a car, don't go near the car because they grab children off the street. You know, that um, it's okay to talk to strangers, but you know, step, you know, make sure you got five or 10 feet so they can't grab you and take you anywhere. So I think I was raised with some street smarts as a child. And I, hopefully I brought that into adulthood and I've not made myself too much of a victim into adulthood. But, um, you know, we all, in order to live, we all have to um, be vulnerable at times and to trust others. And yeah, that's, how we uh, form relationships with each other by allowing (laughs) each other to hurt us, you know, and then we make amends and we forgive one another and, uh, (laughs) you know, the scar tissue softens and, um, you know, time will heal the wounds. But that's one of the um, essays that I wrote lately about just forgiveness and how some wounds hurt for a long time, whether you choose to forgive them or not, you know, and oftentimes the scar tissue even hurts. And, but with time, the scar tissue softens and it does turn into skin again. And, um, you know, people are made whole from very horrible trauma and injury. And um, I hope to be a part of that. I was speaking to um, a mental health worker this month, and she told me that some of her clients who are extremely mentally ill, who don't spend enough time outside in nature and doing like the gardening and the forest bathing, that she, she started buying them green light bulbs and saying, yeah, turn it on for a couple hours a day. And many people are just using a green light bulb. <laughs> um, I think it was once or twice a day. So that's my rooster you probably have heard. But, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, green light bulb actually can improve people's mood. I don't know if it's as good as being outside with real green, you know, um, but there is something about the color green that is um, good for the mental health. So, I, I'm, you know, perhaps um, – <laughs> I've, I've, I've taken classes in the past about horticultural theory and stuff uh, or horticultural therapy, not horticultural theory, but um, yeah, horticultural therapy happens at all different stages that some people um, find it very therapeutic just to, you know, you give them a pile of cut flowers and they do like a flower arrangement and that they find that therapeutic. And then other people, they want to go out in the garden and, and, cut the flowers for the person who's making the arrangement. 
And then um, there, there's this part of horticultural therapy that really seems to work is when people start touching the dirt. So that was one of the things that I, that I really took away from that class is, um, yeah, if the person can get right in there and really touch, touch the soil and really, um, you know, with their bare hands, that is, probably the goal, you know, to really, you know, ground people and get people really close to these plants. And, um, but yeah, I'm finding that, um, yeah, a lot of people are using their telephones to take pictures of plants. And um, yeah, there's all different ways to um, commune with the, the plant world. So you heard the rooster, I suppose, and so I have a family of chickens that are my friends now, and I've been feeding them, and I didn't know it. I, I'm a city boy. I didn't know anything about chickens. I was like, okay, let me just go to the store and get some chicken food. So I've got like two or three different kinds of chicken food. I got something for like chicks, and then I got like this fancy organic food, and then I bought this really dirt cheap thing called scratch grains and I think it's like all GMO like pesticide stuff but I wanted to just try them all out I don't know so um it's funny that um they love the GMO grains more than the fancy organic stuff which is five times the price but um I'm pretty sure it's probably not too covered with chemicals but it, it probably is treated with like antifungals and it's probably not the best thing for um for them, but when they're hungry, they come begging for food. So I have this these scratch grains to give them. But there's plenty of food here in Hawaii, um, plenty of food that these chickens have. Lots of food that they they don't depend on me, but it is kind of fun that they know they can get a handout and they they come um, sniffing around. But I I've had to. It, install a fence around my concrete um, like porch because they'll just come up on the concrete porch and start shitting all over it. So I've had to protect myself from these chickens, even though they're a lot of fun. And um, yeah, they're sort of my pets lately. I go and say hi to them every morning and, and they sort of disappear into the woods at night, you know? So yeah. So making space, is uh, the theme for my show. And I'm really um, just blown away that, you know, if somebody comes to me and they want to learn about herbs, that really teaching someone how to make uh, the herbal infusion where you weigh an ounce of dried herb and you put it in either in a saucepan or into a canning jar and you let it infuse for several hours, that that really is um, the biggest and best way to get into herbal medicine and herbal nutrition because it, it really requires a lot of space to go out and buy a, like a whole pound of dried herbs and to have something to boil water with and to have something to strain it with, that it really takes a big type of um, investment. Instead of just handing someone a tincture to stick inside their purse, uh, the person's going to have more of um, you know, a complete experience. And um, I found that um, just having this daily practice of making an infusion is often like uh, a form of meditation and uh, self-care. 
and uh, self-love. So even if there was absolutely no nutritional value, which there is not, there's a lot of nutritional value in these uh, herbal um, infusions. Um, but there's so much more nutrition on like the doing it part and um, just being able to um, keep things organized and functioning. So yeah, I've been um, really relishing how um, the herbal infusions have really, you know, it demanded a big, a big space and I was able to um, make bigger spaces for, and yeah, so the one part that's um um <laughs> so I had to move abruptly in June I got a uh, note that um the house that I was renting was going to be sold and I had to like the middle of July to find a new house. So I found something really quick and it's fantastic. It's a, it's more money though. <laughs> and it's actually less space. But it is way more private and just absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's a, a night-blooming jasmine right outside my kitchen window. There's all kinds of flowering San Pedro cactus all above on the top part of the property. And it's just an amazing space. And I was a little worried about growing CBD at the old location, but in this location was so much easier because I did not want to attract attention with um, cannabis plants. I did not want people coming onto the property and stealing it because they thought they were going to get high off it. Because, um, yeah, that, that does seem to be a problem when people grow marijuana, that if you don't have a private space to grow it, that it can cause a lot of trouble, whether it's legal or not. You know, so again, you know, to um, whatever you want, you really have to assess how much space can I give this thing that I want. So making a space for whatever you want to invite into your life is very optimal. <laughs> so one of the other um, medicines that I've been making from the cannabis is hashish, which is uh, the sifted flowers and the trichome, the little glands will fall off the flowers and through through a screen. And so I, I do the bubble water, water hash type of um, technique. And it did require me to get a chest freezer <laughs> because it, it requires a lot of ice. So Perhaps I didn't need a chest freezer, but it was inexpensive enough, and it really came in. It really came in handy to be able to have uh, the quantity of ice cubes that I do need when I when I get into the the rhythm of making um, hashish. So, so at this new um, house, I brought my chest freezer, and it's completely off grid, and it's regulated that there's not enough electricity or solar panels to power a chest freezer. So I've been just completely going back to school and learning about solar electricity and off-grid living, uh, startup cost of getting my own solar panels and battery and charge regulator and the life expectancy of such equipment. So I've had to enlarge my head for living on the big island in Hawaii about, yeah, that. Many people here have a completely off-grid 
uh, situation where they are producing all the electricity that they use. And that's whether they're going to use uh, solar or maybe a, a wind turbine or in the case of when there's no sun or no wind, that you have to run a gasoline generator. So you'll hear people that live in Hawaii say, yes, we, we, we make all our own electricity. Yeah, you make all your electricity. Some, some of it you have to go and get, you know, a truck full of gasoline to run a generator. So, again, my city boy mind kind of got blown away with, you know, not being able to turn on my lights <laughs> if I didn't have enough power in the battery. <clears throat> so there's been a, a big time learning curve with that. So that really has been all I've been up to. I did my journaling. I did a month without smoking cannabis. I um been learning how to raise chickens. I haven't gotten eggs yet, but I really haven't built any coops yet either. But um I believe when they're ready to uh, start giving me eggs, I'll um I'll know and just they'll just be giving them to me. There's a story about a man in Spain who's won all the foie gras tournaments. He goes to Paris, France, and his foie gras is the finest in the world. And he has a goose farm in Spain, and he doesn't force feed these goose, but he puts out so much food for them, and he has all kinds of trees and nuts and herbs that the goose just love. And they just fly out of the sky, and they come and live on his farm. And, uh, you know, he gets a five-gallon bucket full of, um, I guess it's the livers, <laughs> and he goes to uh, Paris, France once a year and wins awards and makes a living selling the best frog gras in the world. And it's totally natural, no chemicals, uh, you know, no real high-tech methods except um, putting out really good vibrations, planting really delicious food for these animals, and uh, loving them and putting his loving energy into it. So perhaps I will have something like that someday with these chickens and the delicious eggs that they give, give us to eat. I noticed that the hen, the hen right now has 10 chicks, and I, I think she, she's like, there's too many. <laughs> so I don't know if she would mind uh, if some of her eggs got eaten. <laughs> <laughs> so I think she, her her chicks are, uh, yeah, they're a lot of work. So perhaps you know a smaller a smaller batch of chicks probably would. It looks like she would be happier with with the smaller um, brood of chicks, and um, I would be happier um, to get my own farm eggs. But um, it, it, it's funny that the whole economy of eggs right now. You know, you'll ask people. And, uh, yeah, you, the cost of buying the eggs from a farm is probably the same as buying the chicken food. You know what I mean? Like, so the whole economy of making, of having your own eggs in your yard, really, there's no cost savings, really, out of, out of your wallet. But perhaps I'll learn more and learn how they could, you know. But the one funny thing was I was putting out the food for these chickens, and uh, they stopped eating it. And what happened was I have a geo bin that's full of worm castings and they got into that. So of course, yeah, they don't want any of the scratch grains if they have like an unlimited supply of like red, red wigglers. 
But fortunately, it's about three feet deep, and I think they only they only dug about a foot <laughs> into my worms. But um, yeah, they they're they're pretty well fed. They have tons of bugs and worms and all kinds of stuff. So if I just disappeared and stopped feeding them, they would be fine. So that is a really cool type of pet to have here in Hawaii is um, chickens because they're jungle birds. They they don't need humans. <laughs> But, you know, they, they they do kind of appreciate coming to visit every day and getting a little snack. So um, I think um, so one of the things that really resonated with me this month was um, I have a friend who I've never met in person, and I don't think I've even talked to him live. I've only spoken to him by email a few times. And whenever I've had – I've listened to his podcast called uh, Tangentially Speaking, and he's always written me right back. So I think um, I don't write him too many emails, but when I do have an email, it's usually thoughtful. And he, yeah, he finds the time to say thank you and perhaps give me a little bit of feedback of what I told him. But I love listening to his podcast because we have been going through some confusing times with uh, people during this election, especially the way um, you know I, I kind of really feel horrible when I hear. Um, people criticize someone like Dr. Fauci, who um, I think I can't think of a better person that the president could have, you know, put in charge of, um, you know, communicating to the American people what COVID is and what we can all do to, you know, to be safe from it. And a lot of people have put, you know, put a lot of blame on him saying, well, at first you said we didn't need to use masks. And then you come out two weeks later saying, yeah, we're going to need to at least put cloth masks, uh, a bandana on to um, to slow the spread of COVID. And, uh, yeah, I have my own personal, you know, ideas right now, whether it could be stopped or crushed the way um, Nancy Pelosi, you know, the politician says, yeah, President Trump's uh, second you know, financial stimulus plan had no plan to crush the virus. And I'm like, I don't really know if, um, you know, if blaming President Trump for 230,000 COVID deaths, I have yet to really make that connection yet with, um, you know, perhaps he just, you know, with his, you know, stupid, re- you know, rhetoric that he puts out that makes racist and other people feel like it's okay to be that way. Um, Yeah. I don't know how much of the president's messaging has caused people to get increased amount of COVID in this country. And um, they like to bring up examples of other countries that have successfully dealt with COVID. And so that's proof that the president did something wrong because they didn't, they didn't go of it. You know what I mean? So um, I'm really just weighing it out and trying to really think logically when people make these outrageous claims that a single U.S. president could be causing, um, you know, the increased amount of COVID in the United States. But, um, you know, I do wish everyone listening um, good health and to be careful what we know about these um, type of you know, pandemic years is a hundred years ago. There was a pandemic like in the early spring, which um, 
and then people quarantined for six months and then it came back in like the November part of the year. So really, you know, let's try to learn from history and just really be on um, guard. I thought I was going to be able to um, travel this month to visit uh, friends and family in New York state. And I'm finding out that if I want to travel to another state that it, I may have to be tested for COVID before I leave my state. And then I have to be tested for COVID when I enter uh, another state. So there's a lot of different um, things that they're asking us to do. And I really don't have any arguments with these authority figures and so on. When I did hear um, um, Chris Ryan on his podcast, um, talk about, you know, logic and looking at every side of things and yeah, like asking for evidence of things and not accepting everything, but really put, put your trust in the right people and uh, test them and make sure they really are worthy of your trust. So I'm going to play this clip of Chris and he does these uh, ranting out of my ass episodes. And this one was called masks on his uh, tangentially uh, speaking podcast. I think it was masks part one <laughs> was the title of it, but this is a 12 minute clip of him, um, you know, sort of complaining that in the United States, most people are not taught how to think and how to think is using logic and reasoning and looking at, problems in different ways. So um, let him um, talk for about 12 minutes. I'll take a break and perhaps I'll come back with more um, of what I want to say. And then show me the evidence. Where's the evidence of this? And this gets to a central point that I want to make today, which is that A, the education system in the United States and most other countries does not teach people to think independently. It teaches them the opposite of that. It teaches them to blindly believe whatever bullshit is coming to them from some person that strikes them as credible. And look, again, how can we not do that? I'm not blaming anyone for that. When Neil deGrasse Tyson says something about astrophysics, I'm not in a position to say that guy's full of shit. I don't know. What the fuck do I know? Am I going to go back to school and get a PhD in astrophysics and then come back and analyze what Neil deGrasse Tyson said 15 years ago? I don't think so. When my doctor tells me, hey, uh, you know, you need to cut back on this and you need to do more exercise and... Am I going to say, what the fuck do you know? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know. So there is a certain amount of trust in authority figures that's necessary in the modern world or, or in any world. You know, when a shaman told someone, you know, you need to whatever, uh, stop eating meat for a month and, uh, no sex so that the, the the spirits, the evil spirits will leave you alone. Well, I, most people believe the shaman because the shaman has done some studying and spent some time and been to the other worlds and know something that I don't. So it's totally natural and understandable that we surrender some of our critical thinking skills uh, to authority figures. But 
What about when authority figures disagree? What about when there are all sorts of different authority figures all shouting out their opinions with great conviction? What do we do then? That's when we need critical thinking skills. That's when we need to finesse which of these authority figures is full of shit, which of these authority figures has done their homework, which of them are more likely to be correct, which one has uh, a hidden agenda, who's being paid. You know, there's there were medical doctors who said, no, nah, smoking's fine. There's no evidence showing that smoking is linked to lung cancer. Okay, those are medical doctors. And then there are other medical doctors saying, uh, actually, we've done a lot of research and we found that uh, the vast majority of our patients who smoke cigarettes end up getting lung cancer. So can we prove the mechanism? No, not yet. We don't know the mechanism, but we certainly see a very strong correlation. Okay, so you've got people on both sides of the argument. Who do you believe? Well, at a certain point, doesn't it come down to something as simple as one of these doctors says that me sucking smoke into my lungs on a regular basis is bad for my lungs? The other doctor says it isn't. Hmm. Well, isn't there some obvious sense in which we know that sucking lung in, uh, sucking smoke into our lungs is probably not good for us. If you're standing downwind of a campfire, you start coughing pretty fast and you move out of the smoke. So in what world is sucking that smoke into your lungs good for you or not bad for you? Your body is telling you every time you cough that that's bad for you. So there is a, a level of common sense that comes into these things. Back to Bertrand Russell, he said, there have been four sorts of ages in the world's history. There have been ages when everybody thought they knew everything, ages when nobody thought they knew anything, ages when clever people thought they knew much, and stupid people thought they knew little. And I would change that to ignorant people, not stupid people. But I'm quoting him. And ages when stupid people thought they knew much and clever people thought they knew little. Okay? So, four ages. Everybody knows everything. Nobody knows anything. Smart people know a lot. Ignorant people know that they don't know much. And ages when ignorant people think they know a lot and clever people think they know little. He says the first age is one of stability. That's the age when everybody thinks they know everything, so that's stable. The age when nobody knows anything is an age of slow decay. The age when clever people think they know a lot and ignorant people understand that they don't is an age of progress. And the age when the ignorant people think they know a lot and clever people think they don't know much is the age of disaster. Now, there was a time when being ignorant was not 
a reason to be ashamed. There's a time when, when people said, you know, I didn't get past second grade, but I work hard so that my kids will get an education, so that my kids will know things. My kids can travel. My kids can read. There's a generational sequence that often happens. You've seen it if you know anyone who's parents or grandparents were immigrants to the United States, often they were ignorant. They didn't have a chance to go to school. They were war refugees. But they worked hard. They saved their money. They were clever. They did what they needed to do to give their kids an opportunity. And then that second generation typically is the generation that gets a good job works really hard, does well because they're very ambitious, because they feel the weight of their parents' sacrifice weighing upon them. So they do their fucking homework. They become engineers. They become doctors. They become lawyers. They become they go into professions where they've got a very high likelihood of a high income that's stable. And then their kids are the ones who study music and poli-sci and sociology and literature and travel a lot and sort of have a good time. I'm from the third generation. My best friend Mike is from the second generation. And it's something that we were very aware of growing up, that Mike felt a great responsibility um, to repay his parents for their sacrifice. And I didn't feel that because the sacrifice had come two generations back or more longer in my family. Anyway, my point is that being ignorant was not a cause for shame and should not be a cause for shame. And what's happening in the United States now is that, I think one of the things that's happening is that the elite... In other words, the the clever in Bertrand Russell's estimation have failed us. They were the heads of the institutions that have failed, that have been exposed to be empty shells of hypocrisy. Because as money and corporate interests have infiltrated themselves more and more profoundly into American culture, what we see is that advertisements are lies. Political campaigns are lies. A lot of the information coming from pharmaceutical companies are lies. We see, for example, the great distrust of pharmaceutical companies, which is fueling a lot of the rebellion against masks, against vaccines, against whatever, is well-founded. Because pharmaceutical companies would prefer that we be sick and taking drugs than that we be healthy. That's just good business. So the people who are disappointed in me for suggesting that we should wear masks, a lot of them are coming from a place of saying, hey, I can't believe you believe the shit that these, that that, industry that that uh, institution is telling us why do you believe it they lie to us all the time they tell us that you know we should keep eating 
shitty food, but take their anti-cholesterol medications. And we should be obese and have all sorts of uh, chronic health conditions and diabetes, but we take their anti-diabetes medication because the truth is those companies want us to be chronically ill. It's better business for them. I agree. That's true. But I also think that there's a certain amount of common sense that you can bring to these things and say, oh, we've got an airborne virus that is spread through saliva droplets wearing a cloth mask over your fucking mouth and nose when you are out among vulnerable people is common fucking sense. And the people who are choosing this as the place to make their stand saying, you know, I have the freedom not to wear a mask. It's up my right as an American. It's anti-constitutional. Fuck you. That is stupid. Not ignorant. Remember, I said there's no shame in ignorance. But there is shame in stupidity. There is shame in saying I have the right to spray my fucking saliva all over the place, even though I'm in a room with old people with sick people. And if your response to that is, well, they should be healthy, they should look after their immune systems, tell that to a 92-year-old. Tell that to a 7-year-old who's obese because his parents feed him shit food because they can't afford anything better or because he grew up in some city where that's all he could get or a culture that tells him that sitting around playing video games and eating Cheez-Its is an acceptable childhood. Are you blaming that kid? Are you blaming the 92-year-old for being 92? Are you blaming the cancer survivor for having had cancer and and a compromised immune system? Really? Is that where we are? But I get the distrust of authority figures. I get it. They have agendas. So, hello. Oh. So, yeah, that was um, Chris Ryan on his uh, Tangentially Speaking podcast, uh, the masks episode. And I think he prefaced it by saying he was attacked online because he has an Instagram account. And he's um, been living out in the backwoods of... Colorado, and you still have to wear masks out in the backwood of Colorado when you, especially when you go into inside places. So um, he he had a little sign of some kind. I didn't see the actual post, but it it was a sign that says wear your fucking mask, and he put it on his Instagram, and people came out of the woodwork and attacked him for it. And my opinion is, um, wear your fucking mask. There's a subtext to it. You don't have to like masks, but just wear it. <laughs> you know, you can call it a fucking mask, but just wear it because even if you have a personal belief that it doesn't do anything, guess what? It makes other people happy. And to do something that simple to make other people happy, you should do it for that reason alone. <laughs> but I wanted to get back with – um you know, myself putting trust in an authority figure like uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Fauci has like a long history of 
working in the AIDS, um, you know, movement that, you know, gave me question and I questioned him. And um, then I started to understand that, you know, like that whole masks thing in the beginning, what was he supposed to do? These, these people are public health experts. And they knew at the time to ask 300 million Americans to immediately start wearing masks when there weren't enough really um, uh, um, masks available at the time. And they actually probably filled the warehouses with uh, disposable masks. So then the week or two later, they said, yeah, perhaps just use a bandana if you don't have a mask and just start wearing a mask everywhere and let's see if we could slow this down. And people have been, overall, I think these instances of people that don't think they need to wear a mask are um, in clustered parts of communities and then they're going out in the rest of the country infecting people. I don't know what's going on. So one of the reasons I really respect Dr. Fauci, though, is in the past month, he did an interview where people asked him, or the interviewer asked him about the PCR assessment to be able to determine what is a COVID case. So the PCR assessment was invented sometime in the 1980s, and it is 100 you know, 100% accurate that if you have COVID, you can use this PCR um, test and find that you do have COVID. But there's different ways to do this, and they're called cycles. And I think the cycle that's used most around the world is 30 cycles. And it's, it's a, each cycle is sort of a heating and cooling type of procedure. And um, you'll get uh, a certain amount of false negatives at the 30 level. And, um, you know, so I think um, in the United States, they've increased the number because they, wanna, they want to um, lower that number of false negatives. So they've increased it up to like 35 and 40 and 45. And now they have to deal with the fact that they're getting a lot of, I don't know if you'd call it false positives, but you're getting cases that are completely asymptomatic. So I'm not um, a chemistry person, but they did pose that question to Dr. Fauci, is there any worldwide standard of doing this PCR? And he said, no. And there's not even a standard amongst testing labs in the United States. So I don't know how, you know, when you see these numbers that are all throughout the United States, how you know, if they really are all on the same page and getting the same, you know, proportion of false negatives and false positive, you know, or I'm not calling it a false positive, but a high incidence of asymptomatic cases. So that was something that he addressed directly. And I really respected an authority figure like him just coming out with the truth. Yeah, we don't know what is the correct cycle really, or the most, and I guess we will know after maybe years of doing it at a certain way and getting certain results and just breaking it down in some form of scientific method. But at this time, even with the PCR test where it can be assessed, they could, you know, they could take tissue, I think, from a dead body and tell if there's any COVID virus in the dead body. 
And I'm still not even sure if that's how they uh, are able to determine what is a COVID death. Because I don't know if there's people actually dying the way they were dying in March where they're, you know, put on a, they're quickly put on a ventilator and they die. So I'm, I'm not even aware of what is a COVID death, you know, like I've been seeking it out and finding out like, yeah, there's 230,000 COVID deaths. And there's one half of the political movement that says that's entirely Donald Trump's fault where I, you know what I mean? I'm just really trying to navigate myself through this, you know, thinking it through reasonably, trying to remain very curious and uh, asking questions. But in the meantime, I'm going to wear my mask. If someone demands that I get tested before I go somewhere, I'm going to get tested and I don't have to like it, but I'm going to go along with it because I care for my fellow human beings, and I don't want to make this problem any worse than it already is. So um, that is, I think, my last, uh, my real rant that I had about, <laughs> you know, being able to think logically is a way to navigate through times of chaos and mystery and unsureness. And when I was about 40 years old, someone taught me about the trivium. And the trivium is the first three liberal arts. And it consists of grammar, logic and reasoning, and then rhetoric. So I've been uh, taking like online classes to become a better teacher. So I'm learning, you know, educational theory, and I'm finding, like, the best college professors on planet Earth and listening to them talk about this is how I teach. So I found one of the greatest college professors who lives today, and he's been teaching since he's 23 years old at a Ph.D. level. And his name is Stanley Fish, and he's uh, based in New York City. And um, I just loved um, listening to this YouTube uh, it, it was titled, I'm going to title the YouTube if you just want to go ahead and listen to the whole thing. It's called Stanley Fish in Conversation with Alain Stavans at Amherst College. So this is a 20-minute um, clip of Stanley Fish talking about his method of teaching and how um, he's tough and rough. And you're going to do it his way or the highway. And if you don't like it, you can, you can lump it. But um, when you come out of his class and when you finish a semester with this man you've had a full experience and he's going to teach you the material they promised to teach you and um he doesn't get involved with politics and being a partisan and trying to persuade people of something that he believes in he writes very controversial books and he's never been canceled he's never been kicked out of uh you know um a college um, because he's, he does it with a fine sensitivity. He's able to not – he's not there to teach people how to be activists. He's there to teach the material. He's not there to teach people how to be ideologues. He's there to teach the material. So um, this is a 20-minute um, clip of him, and uh, just – it's a lot of fun to just find – on new people and to vibe off them. And um, I hope to become um, a good teacher someday where 
I don't um, have to, um, you know, piss anyone off because my personal beliefs are different than them. If they want to sign up to learn something from me, I just want to teach them what I know and not uh, add these layers of fluff that gets in the way of things and also causes personal problems. I want to be able to pick my battles and not start wars with people I don't need to start wars with. So this is, <laughs> this is the things that I'm learning lately, though, uh, is uh, let's try not to start too many arguments. And um, just like, let's just make fun a priority. And I believe Stanley Fish makes fun a priority, but he's a he's a tough old he's a tough old dude. So uh, here's Stanley Fish, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. What? Oh no, it's not working. Oh no. Oh no, I I uploaded it and it's not working. Oh. Well, it was a great clip. Let me see. I'm gonna see. Oh, I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit refresh. Okay, I got some technical difficulties. All right, let's see if I can get Stanley Fish on the line. The special assignment is very simple, abstract. It's to uh, advance knowledge in the social sciences, humanities, physical sciences, mathematical sciences, computer sciences. That, uh, and, and therefore, uh, to attempt uh, to sift through the alternative and competing uh, views of what is uh, correct uh, and uh, true in those uh, disciplines um, and uh, discuss uh, and uh, analyze uh, the arguments pro and con that are being put forward. That's what we do in the academy. What we don't do in the academy, at least what we don't do in my academy, what we don't do in my academy is move toward the kind of conclusion that then leads to action in the real world. For me, the academy is that place where you turn things over in a deliberative manner and stop short of the waters of action. That doesn't mean that what you give students or introduce students to might not lead them later on, once the door is closed in the last class uh, has concluded to take very specific actions. But you can't design that. The only thing you can as a constructed design can design is a course that delivers the pedagogical goods. And the pedagogical goods are as I describe them. You introduce the students to the life of a deliberative turning over of a number of issues. You equip them with analytical skills uh, and uh, you invite them to exercise those skills in daily conversations in class um, and in projects that are handed in at the end of the course. What do you do with a student Stanley, as, a, as of today in a class that shows that political bent and the need to push the professor in a much more ideologically engaged way, which is, is often the case? Would you be surprised if I tell you that no student in my class ever does any such thing. Uh, uh, because I'm not surprised. Uh, right. Uh, there are many, you know, everyone teaches differently. And there are many, there are many ways of teaching uh, can, that can be differently eff uh, effective. And to some extent, 
Uh, they are uh, functions of temperament and personality. Uh, my method is uh, very simple. I scare students to death uh, as soon as possible while letting them know that while doing it, I am a figure of fun myself. Mm. Now, the wonderful thing about this is even when I let them know that I am aware of how ridiculous my posture is when I bark orders at them, it works anyway. That's the whole wonderful thing about rhetoric, as you, those of you uh, who remember uh, Chaucer's partner's tale uh, may recall. Rhetoric can work even, and in fact often, when those upon whom it is being worked are aware of it. So that's the way I teach. So very early on, my students know what, not, what kinds of questions are not going to be uh, posed here and what kinds of questions uh, sh will be considered. You will have the benefit of old age, you might, if I might put it that way. Uh, but somebody who is uh, 40 or 45 teaching today, maybe either not yet tenured or on the road to tenureship, yeah. uh, might not have the benefit of the white hair saying I, whatever he wants and not uh, fearing the risk of a, a reaction. Well, I started teaching, I got my PhD early at the age of 23, and I was the same exact teacher then as I am now. Uh, and since I was teaching graduate students from the beginning, I was fortunate enough uh, to have that experience, many of the students that I was teaching were older than I. Didn't make any difference. Mm. Didn't make any difference at all. Uh, but I don't recommend this method to others. Uh, so let's take the hypothetical of a, of a teacher who is not me, uh, which we may perhaps thank God are many. Uh, let's take someone who uh, uh, is more, uh, how shall we say, amiable uh, in his, uh, his self-presentation uh, uh, and less insistent um, in, 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 the, in the pedagogical uh, method. And then someone... Uh, asks a question, uh, which is in fact not a question that is either to the point uh, or in fact is to any academic point at all. Uh, at this moment, uh, perhaps, and only at this moment, uh, the phrase teachable moment, which I utterly despise, uh, <laughs> com comes to mind. You can take advantage of that. I mean, if you, could, you can do it artfully. And you can say, well, you know, that's an interesting question. And it's an urgent question. That is, the questions that students ask that don't belong in the classroom, nevertheless, can be and often are urgent questions. So you say, look, that's an urgent question. In some ways, our society needs to take it up and attempt to answer it. But let me try to explain to you why that's not going to happen here and why it shouldn't happen here. Mm. And then have that discussion, um, at which point a student will say, as a student did say today uh, when I uh, uh, spoke uh, in Professor uh, Daniel Gordon's class, uh, Daniel is a professor of history at UMass Amherst, as many of you will know, and a student raised the question, actually the question that you raised. Uh, well, aren't, aren't there many politically charged topics uh, that come up in classes and are you going to ban them all? To which my answer, of course, is I'm not going to ban any of them. 
I'm just going to insist that you interrogate them in an academic way. So that conversation can occur, and the point can be made uh, perhaps in a more useful way uh, than the brutal way that I usually employ. Can you tell me about a teacher, not a professor, Stanley, a teacher that you had in your early years mm. that is utterly unlike you but had a deep influence in the way you think? Uh, hmm. That's a hard one because uh, to my knowledge, I'm sure this is finally not true, but I don't know the truth. Is I've, I've not been a disciple of anyone. Uh, on the other hand, I do remember two teachers very well. Uh, one was my high school teacher uh, in, the, uh, in English, by the name, a woman by the name of Sarah Flanagan, uh, who was rigorous uh, and no-nonsense, uh, and was the first person who said to me when I handed in something, uh, she said to me something like, well, you, you're pretty good at this. Uh, and I'd never heard that from anyone before. And when you're 15 or 16 or 17 years old, and everyone who comes to your house, that is friends of your parents, are saying, and what are you going to be? And what are you going to do? And you haven't thought of anything to be. And the possibility suddenly occurs to me that you might in the end be nothing at all. <laughs> so that when, this, uh, when Sarah Flanagan told me, you do this and you can do it fairly well, I latched onto it and never let go. Mm. Uh, the other uh, teacher that I'll, I'll mention uh, briefly was a, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, by the name of Maurice Johnson, a, uh, an 18th century scholar. Uh, whose bearing and urbanity and wit uh, and uh, sartorial style I was so taken by uh, that I uh, wanted to imitate him, I have never succeeded. Uh, you said that students have no rights right. on campus. Do faculty have any rights? I want to talk about the section in your book where you reflect on a number of important recent cases of faculty members having made statements uh, that uh, reached out, reached within the campus, but outside of the campus walls, and reverberated in society in a variety of ways, resulting sometimes in the dismissal mm -hmm. of a particular professor, uh, or in, uh, and I want to get you also to that, the rights of administrators, uh, or in administrators who would say, I defend the right of this or that a faculty member who said something that I, the administrator, find disgusting. Mm -hmm. And in your view, the fact that that administrator added that second line is in itself disgusting. Absolutely. That is absolutely. To put it uh, simply, you don't first defend the right of your faculty member to say something and then turn around and condemn what he said, uh, by what I call the administrative two-step. Um, that is, first, yes, he has or she has the right to say it, but believe me, I'm on the right side, I'm a virtuous person, I'm going to condemn it, just as the world must condemn it. That is really weaselly behavior. Uh, and many administrators, unfortunately, engage in that behavior. Uh, and partly they engage in that behavior because administrators, by and large, don't know what business they're in. For example, a lot of administrators uh, believe that they're in the free speech business. 
and as I say in the title of my campus chapter in this book, free speech is not an academic value. But since many administrators don't understand it, when a free speech challenge comes their way, they get paralyzed. Uh, and after being paralyzed, they go to their office of legal counsel, which is populated by persons who have only one thing in mind, avoid lawsuits. Uh, so they get very bad advice from the office of legal counsel. Um, but if they only understood what their job is, which is to ensure the health and growth of the academic enterprise. They wouldn't take what I call the free speech bait. Uh, and they wouldn't say things like, well, we must allow him uh, to say what he said as a private citizen, but I want you to know uh, that we condemn it. Uh, because when you say, when you're a, a dean or a provost or a chancellor, and you condemn someone's point of view, even as you acknowledge that you have uh, no capacity to dismiss him or her, you are positioning yourself politically. And because you occupy a recognizable office, you are positioning the university politically. The university should never be positioned politically. Because once it is, A, it's not any longer doing its job, and B, it makes itself vulnerable to all of those constituencies that always want to assault the university. So uh, you said that uh, you couldn't care less about the politics of students. Uh, could you care more about the politics of professors? Should professors within the institutions have political views that are expressed outside of the classroom? And even as you do, I see a two-face here on your side, if I might use that aspect. You don't get into the political side, but you write op-ed pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, constantly in the New York Times and yeah. the in the Wall Street Journal that might put uh, Yeshiva University or uh, Florida International into uh, uncomfortable position because of something Professor Fish said. Should a professor have be encouraged to become a much more public figure, and to what extent that position compromises his or her freedom as an individual? Are we professors? private citizens on campus or are we members of that academic community exclusively concerned with the production, manufacturing, packaging of knowledge? Well, the book I wrote in 2008, the title of it kind of answers that question. And the title of that book was Save the World on Your Own Time. Save the World on Your Own Time. Uh, by which I meant it's perfectly all right for you as an academic to write op-eds or letters to the editor or chair a committee uh, which uh, is uh, pursuing some uh, controversial policy. Uh, so long as you don't do it on the university's dime. Uh, so long as while you're acting in the university, you are performing activities that you are both trained and paid to perform. Both those words are very important, trained and paid. So, to answer your question directly, I don't think there should be any consequences visited by a university on a professor who, uh, on his or her own time, as a private citizen, gets to say something in print uh, that uh, gathers or provokes a great deal of attention, some of which uh, may be reflected back uh, in a negative way uh, on the university. Again, that's why the, what I call the administrative two-step a moment ago is performed, because universities are aware 
uh, of the extent to which uh, they are, uh, shall we say, vulnerable uh, to shifts in public opinion. Uh, and they uh, wish, quite understandably, uh, to uh, push that vulnerability or to minimize that vulnerability rather uh, as much as possible. So that while I understand administrators who quickly condemn uh, the speech uh, whose uh, protection uh, they have just announced, uh, I, I believe uh, that it's a very bad thing for them to do. But of course, I've already said that. Look, there's a case that came up, some of you may have uh, seen it last week, the University of Indiana, a uh, faculty member by the name of Eric Rasmussen, who's, I think, in the business school and perhaps also in the Department of Political Economy, has a private server in which he says things like, uh, African-American students shouldn't uh, even apply uh, to uh, first-tier uh, institutions because uh, they don't have the capacity uh, uh, to do uh, the work required there. He says, he asks a question rhetorically in an essay he wrote, Are Women Ruining the Academy? And he gives the answer in the title, Probably. Uh, he has another, uh, uh, another a piece in which he explains that all males, all geniuses are males, or almost all geniuses uh, are males. And he says all these kinds of things. And of course, what happens? It gets publicized by someone, perhaps by him, as far as, as I don't really know uh, the backstory. Uh, and there's a demand that he be fired. And there's a demand that he be fired. Now, the provost uh, at uh, Bloomington, Indiana Bloomington, uh, performed a perfect version uh, of uh, the administrative two-step. Uh, she said, again, uh, we, we, he spoke as a private citizen, and therefore, we as a university uh, cannot prohibit uh, or censor his, his, his words, comma, vile and stupid as they are. Now, listen to that. Vile and stupid as they are, she should have been fired. At least she would have if I had the power to do so um, in, in the next moment. Uh, now, as long as Rasmussen is not structuring his teaching according to his strong political ideological views, there's no reason at all academically to move against him. And how... And who who decides that? Who can monitor that? Should somebody uh, come in and legislate on how that syllabus is built, on what, is, what the content is? Well, most universities have, uh, a, as you know, colleges and universities, uh, have processes uh, through which uh, teaching uh, is assessed. Uh, for example, uh, student evaluations. But I should add that I have been bitterly opposed to student evaluations since they first appeared to me in 1965 at the University of California at Berkeley in something then called the Slate Supplement. I think that student evaluations are a terrible thing. Because? They're a terrible thing because, oh, there's so many reasons. Most of, <laughs> most of the people who fill them out do so out of, uh, for negative reasons, reasons of bitterness, disappointment, uh, and hostility. Uh, the the idea that someone who has taken a course uh, in one uh, for a semester uh, is therefore competent to judge the performance uh, of a teacher, uh, that is in many cases the performance of the teacher, that is the course that you have taken, uh, will only be realized in your imagination years later. Uh, there's nothing good to be said about teaching evaluations. Nothing good to be said. But they're, they're there. 
and I, you know, my my ranting against them isn't going to remove them. Uh, so they're there, and in all the cases I write about in the book, the Amy Wax case at the University of Pennsylvania, the Stephen Salada case at the University of Illinois at Urbana, the James Tracy case at Florida Atlantic University, all of these people said things and took positions which made most of their colleagues and a good percentage of the student body furious. But on the other hand, all of the teaching evaluations for these three people were superb. Were superb, and showed that they gave, you know their courses uh, they, their courses were not uh, soapboxes made into soapboxes for their political views. That they they studied the material, that they fairly graded assignments that were reasonable, and so forth and so on. So on the other hand, if it's if it can be demonstrated that a teacher is using his or her classroom uh, for the purpose of furthering personal, ideological, partisan, or even moral views, then there's a reason to move against that person. Yeah, so well, darn. Um, darn. Okay, yeah, so that was Stanley Fish uh, in conversation with Alon. What did I do? Try to get it again. Uh, Alon Scabans at Amherst College. So, yeah, I was reading Stanley Fish's uh, Wikipedia, and he began as an English professor at uh, the University of Berkeley and John Hopkins, and now he's moved into, like, teaching lawyers in law, law school, even though he has f no formal law education. So, I would, you know, I'm going to look for more of his classes and um, attend more of Stanley Fish's lectures because he's absolutely brilliant, and um, I'm in awe of um, what he is transmitting, uh, that, especially about teaching and remaining apolitical and allowing students to um, – work their own logic and, <laughs> and to uh, attack things from, you know, an academic, in an academic way by looking at it in many different uh, ways. So Stanley Fish is great. So I have uh, maybe three things that I'm going to um, um, touch upon. I have uh, saw one good movie in the past month or two that, you know, it was pretty thrilling, and I, I believe it's considered one of the best movies of 2020. And it's a youth movie, and it's um, about the whole um, online streaming culture. So it um, approaches the storyline from someone who's involved with this online streaming culture. And perhaps uh, in the beginning of September when I did a blog talk show, I was, t I was considering perhaps opening up a Twitch account and becoming a streamer. And I was told that you can make a living doing it if you do it three or four days a week. So I've been coming up with ideas. I, I have plenty of uh, video footage of when I drive uh, Uber and Lyft. And it's basically just driving around Hawaii and um, so I was thinking, yeah, perhaps I could turn that into a, a long-form stream, you know, edit it all together, the best stuff. And I think people would enjoy driving around with me in Hawaii, and it would be a pretty entertaining stream. 
I've yet to be able to really find uh, the online broadcasting software. It's called OBS that I would need to be able to upload my videos so I could then narrate along with them live and then uh, interact with a chat room. So those are some of the ideas that I'm coming out with that I've been doing this blog talk radio show for four years. And I'm like, maybe I could do something a little bit more fun, you know, especially with video or um, perhaps just being able to um, do a lot more clips and have just sort of a clip show of things that I'm stumbling upon in um, pop culture, modern culture, ancient culture, uh, what <laughs> I, I, like um, Terrence McKenna, the way he says, you know, by the time you're 40 years old, uh, you should be making up your own culture. <laughs> but I'm always extracting um, inspiration from others. And I really do enjoy um, being with other people. And it's funny how the whole streaming thing and living your life in ways where we're all on zoom and nobody's in the same room with one another. And it's opened up many possibilities in people's life. And, you know, there's people now that are like, Oh, wow, I can move to a place that I want to move because I doing most of my work on zoom. So this, new shift where people are doing a lot more distance work and using um, telephones and video conferencing to work, uh, perhaps it is uh, allowing people to enlarge their space where previously they thought, oh, I, I need to stay in this area because my kids are in a special school and I don't want to um, remove them from their school. So now uh, you know, their kids' special schools sort of really travel along with them. And people are, you know, the space has already been made for them, and now they're filling it with something. And if it's going to be more uh, gratifying, satisfying, or not, you know, these are all just things that we're all discovering and exploring together. And um, so please interact with me. Um, my name is Sean, S-E-A-N. Uh, my last name is Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. If you uh, friend request me on Facebook, uh, just send me a, a little message saying it's from the Blog Talk Show, and I will um, let you see my crazy Facebook feed, which is a little bit manic at times. I'll um, post a lot more and then just, like, totally ignore it for months. But if you just follow me on Facebook without – uh, sending a friend request, you will get all my notifications when I'm doing another uh, blog talk show. So I'm looking forward maybe to have a little bit more about herbal medicine my, at my next show. But I do think Susan Weed's onto something by um, if you're going to teach one thing about herbal medicine, teach people how to make these infusions because they're delicious. And uh, there's a, a vast amount of benefits that cascade from these infusions and it's a, a little bit it's a little bit bigger thing than a little bottle of, you know a little mother's little helper type of bottle of tincture in someone's purse you know infusions is big and it demands space in your life so that's one of the revelations that I've gotten more about why do these herbal infusions you know um, the 
herbalists that I know that have gotten into them, they become much really um, – it's a, just a great starting point if you want an herbal medicine type of nutrition education, like start with these infusions. So um, so this movie that I, I was talking about, which is the best movie of 2020, at least one of the ones that I've heard about, and I made the effort to uh, download. And so right now I am on a data signal, so I have uh, limited data. So I went down to my local church, and I was able to – they have a free Wi-Fi fiber connection. So I was able to download this movie. The title of it is Spree. S-P-R-E-E, and it's basically a dark black comedy. There is murder and violence, but it's done in a playful, funny way, and it kind of has the same commentary as, uh, you know, societal commentary as Taxi Driver did in the, you know, early 1970s, and that that starred Robert De Niro, and oh, no, I can't remember her name. Sybil Shepard, I believe, was in it. So, um, yeah, it's sort of an updated version of Taxi Driver, and instead of um, a taxi, it's a, a rideshare service. So maybe that's one of the funny things that I um, liked about the movie, that, it, you know, the life, of a, <laughs> the life of an Uber driver gone awry. But, um, yeah, I think it really is a, a good critical analysis of all this, like, online type of life where people, um, you know, they don't really have a real life and they're living their life online. So I think it, it spoke to me in a lot of different ways that um, perhaps I don't really want to get it too involved with the Twitch streaming culture because there's a lot of very unhappy people that um, make it their entire life. And the culture of Twitch reinforces that because they have what's called the partner status. And that requires the person to be on the Twitch stream for like three or four days during the week. So it's not like someone like me that can just go on and start making money by doing one show a week. But perhaps I would be able to just start something like that where I'll do one per week and um, maybe a few smaller ones in between. But, yeah, and more – uh, organize it in a way where it's a planned production and more of like, you know, um, appointment type of thing where show up, I'm going to do it at this time. The other uh, television that I've been watching is I, I began, um, there's a podcast called Talking Sopranos, which has two of um, the actors who acted on the series, and they're doing a weekly commentary. And right now they're in the middle of season three, which is the season to watch. And uh, I believe you can purchase the season of Sopranos for like $25. And I think cinematically and just as just an American piece of art, it's, uh, it's a pretty incredible show. And um, there were a couple shows, a couple of the episodes in um, season three that are devastating and um, deep and very um, profound, like things are discussed and touched that, um, you know, there's human trafficking. There's um, the plight of someone who's raped. Uh, there's really strong material in The Soprano Show. And um, 
it was kind of funny because I've been uh, posting every week on Facebook a little, you know, link to the Talking Sopranos, you know, commentary, and then giving my little two cents of what I thought of the episode. And I needed to, uh, I think the show that was, that we watched last week was called University. That was the title of the episode. And you really needed to tell people there is a violent, there's a violence that's done in this show that's very, very, you know, I guess the producers of the show thought that they were making the gangsters a little bit too cartoonish and friendly. And they needed to remind people of who these people that they were portraying are. And, um, but they really framed it in a way that uh, there's a lot of people that uh, are involved in, um, you know, they get into contracts with these mobsters. And um, these contracts um, are sometimes fulfilled with someone getting killed. And uh, you really have to, you know, I think it maybe it teaches a person street smarts watching a show like this because um, there's some bad men in the world and you don't want to get into contracts with these type of people. So anyway, that is a cool idea if you're bored and you don't know what to watch. Um, this Talking Sopranos is every Sunday night. Uh, they, I guess they show it live on YouTube around 10 p.m. Central or 10 p.m. Eastern on Sunday night. And then I usually just, you know, have the show and watch it before that and then watch their little commentary. They'll often have um, a writer or a director of the episode. Last week, they had the star of the episode of University who played the erotic dancer in the episode. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's funny, though, because I, I wanted to do the Stanley Fish clip because he was talking about, I don't give trigger warnings. But he did give an example, and I, didn't, I, I couldn't find that clip. But he's like, occasionally I will give a trigger warning when, when I am going to show something that's pretty, you know, out there in one of my classes, I will, you know, and he gave this really good example of, yeah, I will give a trigger warning occasionally, but you're not going to get a trigger warning for every little thing that's going to hurt your feelings in my class. You're going to have to just, you know, roll with, roll with the punches and, (laughs) and experience um, his class the way he wants, you know, the way he's designed it for you to experience it. And oftentimes, you know, when we are in learning environments, uh, we are jarred out of our realities. And um, a trigger warning perhaps would ruin that experience of being able to be suddenly shifted into, some, into a different perspective and a new reality. So that is my rant about um, giving people trigger warnings about episodes of The Sopranos because I did have to give people a warning last week about that episode called University, if you were going to watch it, to um, hold on tight. And I remember at the time um, when the show was first broadcast in 2001, they told people, hold on tight. This one's going to be, this one's going to really um, change your mind whether these gangsters are nice people or not. And um, the dilemmas that, you know, the, that Tony Soprano faces where he loves and wants to protect women, but he can't. That show really captured um, some powerful stuff. <laughs> so my last, um, 
goodbye to this episode, you know, goodbye to this audience uh, for this month's episode is going to be an introduction of this clip. And I started um, following pollsters for the past two weeks. I was on Twitter all month. And I, normally I, I like not look at Twitter for six months at a time. And it's a pretty cool labyrinth. I was listening to the Kanye West uh, interview, and he was describing how he um, curates his own Twitter stream, and he finds it a very interesting way to you know, intellectually explore because there's a lot of smart people saying smart things. So you have to curate your own feed because there's a lot of idiots also and hateful people and people that are just going to hurt you and um, trigger you on unnecessarily without giving you any kind of gratifying experience. I don't want to be triggered unless there's a payoff. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I've been on Twitter following a lot of politics, and I discovered um, this sports prognosticator called Robert Barnes, who's a lawyer in Las Vegas, and he was on a podcast called The People's Pundit. So I guess throughout the election season, he was appearing on this People's Pundit uh, YouTube show uh, every Monday, and they would just talk for two or three hours, and they knew polls. These people knew polls. And I always thought that the census was an important thing for Americans and for civic, civic, civic life and um, being able to design and improve our societies, having a census and being able to check in and um, report data of what people are up to, what people are thinking. And pollsters really do provide a service like that. It is a higher service that um, I have a lot more uh, respect for the um, industry of polling people. And I also found out that there's politics gets their claws into pollsters and these media groups that that are pushing a certain agenda will pay pollsters who have the, who have the results that they want. So it is often like scientific study, you know, scientific research and pharmaceutical companies paying, paying for the research labs that agree with what they want to hear. So you'll get that also with pollsters, that there's some pollsters that get polluted with money. So they'll get political parties and media organizations that will pay them extra to give them the results they want instead of the hard, cold truth. Hey, we called 100 people and we got these kind of uh, answers. Hey, we called 1,000 people and we got these type of answers. And they break it down very uh, specifically. And there's a, just a real science to it, the way they'll use local people to call people in their own local community so they have um, – trust amongst people, you know, to be able to answer the questions, you know, somewhat um, honestly. But they found out that in populist movements, people are often, because I've heard this phenomena being called a populist movement, and one of the hallmarks of a populist movement is people do vote secretly, and they don't tell pollsters or anybody what they're voting for, and they let everyone, they let the these elite power political structures, you know, chase their tails. And so a lot of the, the polls that are wrong may be sabotage of people not answering polls c correctly. Maybe sometimes it's fear because they don't want to be, um, you know, castigated in their community 
for being uh, a Trump or maybe even a Biden voter, I bet there's places in this um, country where if you tell your neighbors you're a Biden supporter, you're going to get um, some clapback. So, um, yeah, I think um, I think in mixed company, we can all be nonpartisan and loving and um, educational to one another. And we don't have to put on airs or put on costumes of, of what we are not, but we also don't have to be campaigning and arguing and convincing each other of things that we don't even, you know, it's kind of funny too, because I've, I've been coming out with this awakening that I love to have an opinion and I love to voice my opinion, but I'm learning that perhaps I should wait for people to ask me for my opinion and I will be more likely to um, be respected for having an opinion. So I think a lot of people don't even care if you have an opinion or not. And they care even less if you're offering an opinion they don't even care to, to hear about. So perhaps I am just a, a little 14-year-old kid learning these things for the first time. You know, perhaps I should have learned these things when I was 14 years old and do, do, do kind of lack of tact and social grace. But I'm learning at an, at an older age to perhaps I could um, – choose my battles and, um, you know, keep my opinions to myself until I feel like they're welcome. <laughs> but you are listening to my show. So I, I feel great doing this show. I feel, um, you know, at peace with whoever's hearing it. And please, if you want to contact me, Sean, S-E-A-N, Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. I'm on Facebook, uh, People's Medicine Show at Gmail. Dot com. You can send me sound clips or links to sound clips or videos. I'll, I'll put them up on the show. So this is um, the people's show. If you want to contribute to it, go ahead and uh, send me an email or get a hold of me on Facebook. And, um, yeah, help me add some really cool content. So I'm going to let a little tiny clip from the people's pundit end the show. And Joe Biden is going to end the show this this month. <laughs> and we always thought that George W. Bush would say crazy things. <laughs> but we got we got Joe Biden now and he says some really nutty things. But you know what I mean? It doesn't take a, a genius to figure out what he meant. So I think he was being asked asked about voter suppression. So these people's funded, they're a little bit biased on the Trump side. So they sound clip Joe Biden saying this after being asked the question about what are you doing about voter suppression or, you know, do you have a team of people that are helping you with it um, to be able to, you know, get Democrat votes counted in areas of the country where they're not being counted because there are people that are involved with voter suppression. <laughs> and it's a fact. And believe me, there's plenty of other um, type of um, things that are not voter suppression. So I think pollsters do keep elections honest because you can't have dishonest answers. Um, you, ca you can't have crooked elections that do not agree with basic trends of polling. 
So that is another higher purpose of having a polling industry. And this people's pundit is a pretty cool idea because they're not even doing using corporate money. They're just crowdfunding. Hey, if you want to chip in, we're going to do a, a poll of Wisconsin. And they did a poll of Wisconsin. So, um, you know, this year, and they got a, a real, you know, they were able to take the temperature of who they were going to vote for. And it was pretty close. So um, I'll, um, you know, give you that suggestion to check out the People's Pundit on YouTube. Um, I don't think they're that biased, but they're biased, you know, and they have their opinions and they state it. So I think his name is um, Robert Barnes is the lawyer who appears on Monday, and his name is Richard Barris. So he's going to intro the Biden uh, clip, which is uh, – Oh, my goodness. It's George W. Bush good. <laughs> so have a, good, have a good month. I enjoyed doing the show. I love you all. Bye-bye. I know the Trump campaign says they got a, a victory, a legal victory today. But, guys, the fact of the matter is this was a well-oiled two-month-long operation, and they got outsmarted. How do we know? Secondly, we're in a situation where we have put together – and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration, before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics.